Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. My guest today, Tom Nagorski, is a longtime TV editor, reporter, and producer for ABC News and is currently the executive vice president at the Asia Society. Tom's career as a journalist spans some of the major world events of the last three decades, including the dissolution of the Soviet Union in its aftermath, the first Gulf War, the war in the Balkans, Somalia, the second Gulf War, and many, many other events. And we discuss what it was like reporting on these events and witnessing some world historic moments from behind the camera. This is a wide-ranging conversation with Tom telling some fascinating stories from his career, but we kick off discussing the diplomatic relevance of Yao Ming, who was recently nominated for the NBA Hall of Fame. And just a quick note before we start, you know, we've had a lot of new listeners over the last few weeks discover the podcast. Welcome. I love hearing from you as regular listeners know. Hit me up uh, via globaldispatchespodcast.com where you can send me an email, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. And if you are a regular listener, I would so encourage you to keep spreading the word about the podcast and leave a review on iTunes. And finally, one idea I've been toying with recently, which I want to ask you, dear listener, to weigh in on is whether or not you would be interested in me holding virtual panel discussions. The idea is I would interview someone and you from the audience, either a Google Hangout or a conference call or some sort of you know, newfound technology that enables this kind of thing. You'll be able to participate in the interview yourself and ask questions of the interviewee. Uh, so again, let me know if that idea is interesting to you at all by sending me an email at globaldispatchespodcast.com. And if I hear from enough of you, I'll, I'll make it happen. Again, I like create this uh, podcast for you guys. So I want to do what is interesting and relevant for you. And now here is Tom Nagorski. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. I think it's, uh, look, every little bit helps in the U.S.-China relationship. Um, we traffic in, in general bridge-building exercises of all kinds at the Asia Society, and uh, uh, the fact that sport has taken off there, uh, um, and, and basketball in particular, I can't explain why. It actually predates Yao. Uh, you mentioned Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan has been a uh, a cult figure there, you know, ever since his early playing days. And uh, the NBA is huge in China. And when Yao and a couple of the other Chinese guys got into the league, 
you know, that just took it into the stratosphere. I, it's funny. I saw um, on the Asia Society website uh, the story about Yao's getting into the uh, Hall of Fame. And, and aside that Stefan Marbury has his own museum uh, built to him and a, and a statue built to him uh, somewhere in, in Beijing, I believe. And Stefan yeah. Marbury, who, for, for those, you know, who are not familiar, was like an excellent college star and a pretty good NBA star, but never, you know, stratospheric superstar that one, one might associate with statues being built. Well, Stefan Marbury, and and there are, I think, some other athletes in China and other parts of Asia and even other parts of the world when a, you know, when any NBA star, and I think he he probably was an all-star a couple of years, Knicks and Nets, uh, I can't remember where where else he played, but Steph Marbury comes to China and they view that as a little bit of a badge of national pride. Wow, this American decided to, you know, pick up lock, stock and barrel and and come to China. And you're right, he's become a... uh, uh, I guess it, it's not like Yao, but it's uh, he's a he's a you know as big a star there as he ever was here. That's funny. I'm I'm like more of a hockey fan, and you know, in, in like the late '80s and in the '80s, you would have sometimes Russian players defect to the United States, and that was like a big public relations coup. Uh, it's a little little death, a little uh, different, but but the the effect of of sort of national pride uh, is still pretty interesting. I think. It is. And actually, back to Yao, when Yao Ming came here, um, I think it was, I was at ABC News then, but I mean, I, it was a little bit, I don't know, controversial or because in China, you get, it's a different kind of thing. You have a, a, a local homegrown superstar in a sport that, you know, that not many Chinese at the time were playing or didn't quite have, you know, that huge interest in. And wow, he's going to, to the U.S. Why can't we keep him in the leagues here? So um, it works both ways. Um, so I'd love to to learn a little bit uh, more about you. I know you've had a long career in journalism. You're not the Asia Society. Uh, would love to learn sort of where you got your start. So where are you from? Uh, I'm from uh, Lower Manhattan in New York, uh, East 23rd. If you want to get <laughs> specific. Okay. Uh, so so uh, was that like the village? It's well above it's, the uh, village, right? It's actually um, uh, you know pseudo rent controlled housing that was put up after the war. Peter Cooper Village in Stuyvesant Town, and uh, my parents were immigrants from uh, Europe and and came, and that's uh, where they settled in uh, uh, late fifties, early sixties. Where where from Europe are they from? Uh, Dad was from Poland. Mom, Norway. What compelled them to come over here? Uh, a little something called World War Two, <laughs> in their in their own ways. Although. Uh, that's not meant to be a flip answer. My father had a very traumatic, as almost anybody from Poland did. He was 19 when the war began. He was from Warsaw, had a, a, a fairly privileged, good upbringing. His dad was a, uh, my grandfather was a, a, a major criminal defense lawyer in, in Poland. But, um, uh, you know, Warsaw was bombed. He was 19 when the war broke out. Uh, so he, uh, uh, he was out of the country within a month or two, uh, making his way in, in very tough times across Europe, um, and, uh, wound up, uh, with the Polish regiment in, uh, in the UK and Scotland for, for the bulk of the war and then came into the continent. So it's a very long story. What's but the Polish regiment in the UK? Was that just expats who are fighting, uh, the Nazis from the UK? Yeah. Well, there were a lot of, uh, of refugees really from the continent who came there. There've been books written about the Poles because they, uh, uh, they performed particularly the, the, the air squadrons performed remarkably well. And at the time weren't given that much credit for it. But uh, um, so they just, you know, they took, I think, not just Poles, but other nationalities and grouped them together. 
And um, my dad actually went back. He died a long time ago, but my dad went back uh, when he retired to Scotland with my mother and uh, to Edinburgh. And they found all these people who had very fond memories of, of meeting the Polish uh, uh, soldiers who were there at the time. And he wound up with one of those uh, um, regiments going uh, sometime soon after D-Day uh, back onto the continent and then had a very rough time um, after the war uh, as a sort of, you know, stateless guy because the communists were now in Poland. There wasn't really an avenue back and ultimately came to this country in, um, I think 1951. Uh, and growing up the, the child of someone who had that traumatic experience, I mean, was it something that was discussed in the house or was it sort of the kind of thing that a lot of, uh, immigrants, I think, uh, at the time, um, just sort of left that part of their life in the old world. Well, no, <clears throat> on the on the Polish side, my dad's side of the family was discussed all the time, frankly, because so many of his, I mean, his brother was here, his cousins were here. Uh, so I grew up, uh, you know, hearing a lot of Polish uh, and, 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 and hearing a lot of, in English, uh, stories about the time and about the world of my father and a lot of other people who'd seen some awful things were a bit reticent about talking about it. My mother less so, although it's, and it's, it's less well known, I think, but uh, Norway was occupied by the Nazis for five years. Um, there was less bloodshed in that country, but, uh, uh, and she was a bit younger, but she had a very, you know, in that sense, a, a tough wartime experience as well. But she was the only one, you know, Norway didn't produce a whole lot of refugees the way Poland did. Um, so she, she came to be with my father. She didn't come here per se as, a, as an evacuee or a refugee. Well, how did they meet then? That is a story that would take your entire podcast, but uh, in, in very brief terms, uh, my mom was working for the newly minted United Nations in Geneva. My father had uh, made his way from a mail room in Queens for Pan Am to a, uh, a sort of sales position at Swiss Air, which was a, a up and coming airline and a very, at that time, booming airline industry here. And his first sort of business trip back to Europe coincided with a trip my mother uh, made with a friend uh, to Spain. And uh, my dad basically met my mom uh, at a bar at a hotel uh, in Spain. And uh, they spent about a week together, uh, went back to Geneva and New York, respectively, and wrote letters for two years. Um, never had a conversation, but the letters must have been great because they then decided to go and meet uh, in Europe, and they were married at the town hall in Oslo, Norway, in 1956. That's so like charming. <laughs> that's, that's, that's amazing. Um, yeah. uh, so, uh, grow, I guess uh, growing up, I, I mean, was it a politically active family? Did you guys follow the news? I mean, having, you know, uh, I suppose being the the child of immigrants from two different countries, you may have had like your foot in three different worlds. Yeah. Well, in terms of this conversation and my own, you know, I I, I knew. Even whether whether I liked it or not, and I happened to like it, I, you couldn't help but be interested in in the rest of the world. Uh, and it's not like it was forced down my throat in any way, but there were just interesting conversations. Particularly, I guess, not only because of my parents, but because this, these were Cold War days. Um, you know, particularly about Europe and the Soviet Union. Um, I happened also to have a cousin, have a cousin who's uh, uh, older than I am, who uh, had a long career at Newsweek magazine. And, um, so I, I followed what he was doing. I always liked to write, 
but I would say a very seminal thing for me in terms of making a career choice. Um, in 1982, he was the Newsweek uh, correspondent in Moscow. I was a uh, just finished my sophomore year in college, and because my dad worked for an airline, I could get a, a free or deeply discounted ticket. And I got a visa, and I went to spend uh, a week or ten days in Moscow, and you know, Brezhnev's time, real heart of the dark days of the Cold War. And it was it was a tough trip. It was fascinating to me. Um, I had been also to uh, to Poland with my parents in the late seventies. So those two trips to really it's a cliche now, but behind the Iron Curtain and see um, beyond the, you know, the news headlines what uh, uh, what that period was like and what life was like in those places left a, a pretty big impact. Is there uh, any the- sort of moment that that kind of crystallized the um, experience behind the Iron Curtain? from that trip? Yeah, a couple of things. When I went to Poland, this was 1978, uh, we had some distant family uh, in the country still, not many. I'll never forget my dad explaining to me that, uh, you know, uh, when that family put some cold cuts and butter and bread on their table for a lunch, that I had to understand the the, uh, extent and the lengths to which they've gone to just have that stuff available. I mean, it's really hard. I explain this to my kids now because it seems so, you know, almost fantastical to think about. Uh, but uh, here was an enterprising people in a, in a country that today is is uh, Poland that is very well off uh, by you know, relatively speaking, and they couldn't, uh, you know, you couldn't find things like butter and sugar. So I remember that, and in a very different way, but. Boy, really profound thing that happened when I was with my cousin in Moscow in, in 82. Uh, at that point, a lot of, of Soviet dissidents or artists or people who had their difficulties with the government would seek out journalists to um, have some kind of contact with the outside world. Sometimes at their peril, they would seek out journalists. So it was quite a, a fascinating crew of people who came by. And one was uh, uh, a pianist named uh, uh, Vladimir Feltzman who at the time was, was already an international prodigy. Um, he, uh, boy, I can't even remember now what he did exactly. He, he traveled to some concerts. He said a couple of things that weren't, you know, what, what should have been said at the time. And he was blacklisted uh, um, by the Soviet Union. And, uh, you know, I don't think he was ever jailed, but they, they took all his records out of the, the stores and everything else. And I had, you know, I sat with this man at dinner uh, he was meant to play uh, at Lincoln Center in New York uh, soon thereafter. And I was, you know, I was maybe 19 or 20 years old and, and naive about these things. And I said, well, maybe I'll see you in New York. And he just sort of chuckled and and said, no, I'm not going to be there. And, you know, a month later, I was back home and I read in the paper about how uh, uh, they, they'd had an empty seat at the piano at Lincoln Center for the moment when Vladimir Feltzman was supposed to be playing. Um, and uh, a few years later, uh, things thawed a little bit, and I will never forget, you know, standing in line to get a ticket for Feltzman's first concert back here uh, in New York at Carnegie Hall. But, you know, things like that are just hard, I think, for people who, who didn't you know, at least read about them, if not experience them, to understand today. But those were, uh, those were pretty profound memories. Uh, so is the moment where you were you were staying with your your cousin at Newsweek when you decided that you wanted to be a journalist? All these interesting people were were stopping by. Yeah, I mean it. It certainly added to the mix. I can never remember. I don't remember ever. I like to write a lot, but you know, it's 
it's hard to just say, oh, I want to be a writer. I mean, I have, I have written and published a book, but uh, uh, journalism married those things together, my interest in the rest of the world and my fondness for writing and, and my curiosity. Uh, and yeah, to some extent, I watched my cousin um, in the print world, and, and he was with Newsweek for a long time at its heyday and uh, got to go to all these fascinating places. So that was that was an inspiration. Yeah, too. You're, you're, you were talking about the Iron Curtain, but Newsweek is, is soon to be a relic, too, sadly. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, maybe maybe my kids will, will learn about the mythical mythical Newsweek magazine. Um, uh, so so how did you, what was your first start? How did you get your first gig in, in journalism? I uh, was... I, let's see. It was after, well, sometime while I was in college, I can't remember which year, um, I started looking around for internships, which wasn't done, I don't think, with the crazy ardor and frequency that it is now, but I did. And I got a, uh, a job on the assignment desk at uh, Channel 5 News here in New York, the 10 o'clock news, uh, which was a very, boy, I mean, there wasn't much international about that. It was a very uh, local uh, broadcast in a time when New York was, uh, you know, just a quite different place. A lot more crime, a lot more salacious stuff going on. And the newsroom there was, uh, uh, you know, not really what I had dreamed about in terms of, but, but it was super interesting. It got me in the door. And then I, I was able to get an internship at ABC News uh, just before my senior year. And they hired me right out of college. So, so what? What year is this? Like the mid eighties? Yeah, yeah. So I grew up in in the New York media market in in Connecticut, in in uh, like near Danbury, Connecticut. And I, being a news junkie from a young age, would watch like the local New York news when I was like six years old in like the mid nineteen eighties, and just watch. It was like the middle of the you know the crack epidemic, and just like watch the most horrible stories that I think have been still seared into my my subconscious. Well, well, you may, and Mark, you may remember that the, this newscast had as its uh, uh, moniker or, or uh, it, right at, at 9.59 and 58 seconds every night, you would hear somebody say in grave terms, it's 10 p.m. Do you know where your children are? <laughs> and and then came the 10 o'clock news. And I never really thought about it at the time. It was a, it was a great little zinger because it, you know, it, it, it made you sit up and oh it's it's time for the news but it was also a reflection if you think about it of you know boy i guess you have to really be worried about where your children are um so so you started abc news and you referenced earlier um your uh your your connection with peter jennings the late peter jennings um so did you did you go and, and start working directly for him the abc nightly news no, uh, the job I got, not by choice, but the one where the internship had been and where I got started was uh, 2020, which oh, yeah. uh, very, very different. Stone program. Phillips. And uh, I, I yeah. used to watch that, too, as, as a kid in like the late 1980s. Yeah. I mean, this, this, I, I, I was there when he came on board, but there were, uh, uh, yeah, Hugh Downs, Barbara Walters. Barbara Walters, Hunt, Hugh Downs. Oh, yeah. Hunt. That was like a Friday night ritual for uh, yeah. growing up in our house. Yeah. So um, it was a very different program. A guy, the guy who hired me, uh, who uh, was a mentor in a different way, is a guy called Av Weston, uh, who had worked at the CBS uh, at CBS News for many years uh, before. Um, it was a much more serious enterprise then. It was sort of a cousin, in a way, of 60 Minutes, uh, in a good way. Um, uh, Av Weston, when I ultimately went overseas a few years later, I went to see him and. Uh, uh, found out something I probably should have known because I went overseas right after the Berlin Wall came down. 
Bob Weston and the CBS reporter Daniel Shore had been in Berlin in the summer of 1961 when they heard jackhammers at like two in the morning. And that was the Berlin Wall going up. So, you know, he was a great guy to uh, even after I worked for him to just go back to occasionally still in touch with him sometimes. But to, uh, uh, you know, to get some perspective uh, from a guy who really, really knew the ropes of, of overseas reporting. So, so you were you covered the fall of the Berlin Wall? No, I was here actually in between. I had a fellowship in uh, Southeast Asia in 88, 89. And the only time in my life where I was really sort of, I guess I said I was freelancing, but I was unemployed for a stretch, uh, coincided with my return from that fellowship. And I was just sort of looking around and uh, the wall came down then. And, and, and in addition to just sparking my own interest, I actually went almost immediately thereafter, I think, or just prior to Poland with my father, because Poland had had its own uh, sort of more peaceful revolution uh, that year to see how things were changing then. But uh, what it did um, for, I guess, all kinds of, of media organizations, but at ABC News, where I had a lot of contacts, it opened uh, the door for uh, more hires uh, and more focus on Eastern Europe writ large. And I could claim some experience or at least knowledge of that part of the world, a little bit of language, although that was a stretch. And so I was hired in... Um, early 90, 1990, so just a couple months after the wall came down, uh, to go and be a producer for ABC News in Germany. And, and like, how transformative, like, was that experience in terms of, like, people coming, sort of emerging from, from behind the Iron Curtain? I suppose, like, the, the curtain had been, like, lowered slowly or, uh, you know, fairly slowly, but then there was, like, a, you know, it was a pretty tumultuous time, I would imagine. Yeah, it was incredible. I can remember when I got on the plane the first time, I thought, typical kind of journalist thing to think, I think, was now, you know, that I'm late to this because, uh, you know, November 9th, I think it was, was when the wall came down and I'm now in January and you sort of feel, to some extent, it's true. I, I had nothing, you know, I was actually in Asia when the whole thing started and uh, and so I missed all those, uh, uh, those incredible moments uh, across Central Europe. However, you're right, it was, um, it was, a fascinating thing to watch and a very different thing to watch in the different countries. I spent a fair bit of time, well, I lived in Germany, but I also spent a fair bit of time in Poland, what was then Czechoslovakia. Um, and, you know, the different ways that these countries handed, handled both the economic transformation uh, and very different thing, the sort of moral business of what to do with the the demons and the horrible people from the past, you you know, very different approaches in those countries. And then uh, before long, we were into, uh, you know, the Soviet uh, situation, which even then people thought, well, they'll never, you know, go this way. And of course, less than two years, they did. Um, so what, what were those different moral ways of, of reconciling and dealing with the, the crimes of, of the communist era and, and, um, like, how did different countries deal with that? Well, I guess you had the extreme case of the Romanians, which was, I think it was Christmas Day, 89 in Bucharest, and Ceausescu was lined up against the wall and, and shot. Um, and on the other side, there were, uh, um, you know, commissions to uh, sort of, in a way, not unlike what they did in South Africa, truth and reconciliation, hear from everyone, 
uh, and uh, and try to maybe not let bygones be bygones, but to open a more civil discussion about everything. And so, uh, you know, uh, there there became, for example, not long after uh, something in Germany they called Ostalgia, which I'm probably mispronouncing, but it it uh, it Ost being the word for for the East, where you know, within a few years, there was a nostalgia for uh, what life had been like in, in East Germany, uh, which personally I felt was, having been there prior, I thought was ridiculous and, and I still do, you know, terribly misplaced. But um, there was, you know, I think different approaches that probably corresponded to, you know, the extent to which people felt they had been personally, uh, you know, affected. Uh, uh, I mean, in East Germany, there was the whole crazy sideshow, not a sideshow, but a huge thing uh, around the uh, uh, the Stasi, the former secret police. One of the most interesting things I ever did there was uh, on the day they opened the vaults and the dungeons uh, to the media. Uh, and, you know, the, the old shooting ranges where the agents would practice and then reams and reams and reams of uh, files that were kept in, in you know, Orwellian fashion on just about everyone, including, you know, wives who informed on their husbands. And I mean, just things, again, that very, very hard to imagine, but the architecture of the police state in these places, I don't need to tell you, it's just, uh, it's mind boggling. Um, so for how long did you spend in, in Europe? I was in, uh, uh, Germany for two years and then, um, uh, you know, the, the sort of, uh, Particularly, I think in, in television news, there there was then. It's probably much worse now. There was a little bit of attention deficit disorder, right? That uh, um, because I, I hadn't even been in in uh, in Europe for one year when uh, I get a call uh, saying you've got to go to Kuwait City and get a crew and go on the next possible flight. And we kept our flight guides handy at all times. And the next possible flight, I also will always remember, happened to not be a nonstop from Frankfurt, but uh, with a layover in Austria, which became very relevant because um, that delay meant that on the Austria to Kuwait City leg, I'm looking out my window. I had never been to the that part of the world. I think well, maybe I'd been to, to uh, Israel or Egypt. But here we are over the, the dunes of Saudi Arabia and the... Uh, Announcement comes over the in-flight system. The uh, Flughafen ist geschlossen. I don't know how your German is, but uh, that means the airport is closed uh, in Kuwait City. And so a little thing called Saddam Hussein's uh, divisions crossing into Kuwait had happened while we were flying. And uh, it was my first introduction also into the uh, world of, you know, my mother. My father had, had recently passed and my mother, I knew she would be thrilled that I'd had a layover and therefore hadn't made it. And of course, everybody on the news desk back in New York uh, was so dismayed because for a while they thought, oh, wow, Nagorski and his team are probably in Kuwait City now and not many people were. Uh, but that flight then rerouted to Damascus, where I wound up uh, getting a crash course in all things Syria and, and, and was there actually, I think, for the better part of a month while uh, the you know uh, things the beginnings I guess of what was then this would have been August of uh, 1990 and we're obviously a long way before the war started but uh, the whole sea change in, in the Middle East 
that, that began as a result. Did you make it into to Baghdad? I know there's like a small crew of, of journalists in Baghdad as the war was starting. Really, I guess I should say as the international war, Operation Desert Storm uh, began. Yeah. No, I spent a lot of time in, I made a few trips to Baghdad that, I guess it would be the fall of 1990. Uh, we would, you know, teams would go in, the, the Iraqis then, we talk about a police state, <laughs> they were... Uh, they were anxious to have you there, but anxious to have you there to do only certain things and to stay. I think usually you could just go in on a week's basis, which was, was, was plenty, really. And you'd go in, go out, and a new team would come in. But that was before uh, the war actually began. It was in the run-up. Uh, there was an ABC team, a good colleague of mine, actually, Fabrice Masseuse, one of the great cameramen who ever worked in television news, uh, was there uh, when the war began. Um, I was in Cairo then. Uh, you know, it, it sort of spread us around uh, uh, in different parts. And uh, so, you know, but back to the, the earlier point, really what it meant was uh, here I was a person who had been sent to Germany to report on and worry about all the things that were happening in a pretty large swath of, of Eastern and Central Europe after the fall of the Berlin Wall. And probably from that, that, fateful day in August 1990 until well into 1991, I spent, you know, tons of time on the road and almost always in a, in a Middle Eastern capital, not an Eastern European. I mean, but to a certain extent, aren't some of those skills transferable? I mean, you know, you're as a journalist, right? You need to be an expert very quickly on anything. Sure. And I don't mean to suggest that it, it, it just was a, uh, 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 it, you, one's attention span got got jerked around wildly, and in a way, it made it incredibly fun. Is maybe not the right word, considering the types of things we were doing. But I always look back on those days, and I think I appreciated them at the time. As uh, you know, I'm a pretty intrepid traveler. I always like going to new places. But you, you know, we all have the the, the great uh, privilege of going to places that even you know, even the most intrepid, intrepid travelers would not seek out or, or go to. And you're and, you know, you're rushing headlong into, uh, you know, I went to uh, Chukurcha in, in Turkey and I would challenge even my geographically brilliant 14 year old son to know where that is on a map. But, um, I'm, you know, I must have been the only person who spent a great deal of time in Turkey and never went to Istanbul because this was the. Um, the, the far southeasternmost sliver of the country, um, very beautiful, very forbidding place where huge numbers of Iraqi refugees uh, fled and created a, a big humanitarian crisis when Saddam Hussein bombed the Kurdish populations in the north as the Gulf War wound down. And uh, that became, you know, a pretty epic story and a very difficult one because you, you had to get somewhere and operate in a place that was tough to reach, tough to just live in, and tough to deal with in terms of the horrible things you were seeing when, when you did get there. And that, that's considered, you know, that the, the bombing of, of the Kurdish regions after the war wound down is kind of considered like one of the, the great failures of the war from, from uh, you know, a U.S. perspective or an American perspective. There's like that line that, you know, that the, the George W. H. W. Bush sort of sold them out in, in, in a way to, to end the war. Yeah, and I think it's true and it's fair. The one thing I'll say, though, uh, just because uh, 
by the time I got there, I got to bear witness to it. Um, and it's, it's worth remembering all these years later with the sea changes that have come to that part of the world. Uh, there was a, a horrible, horrible degree of suffering, as I said, in those mountains. And, and, and it seemed almost impossible to, I had no experience in, you know, huge, even watching huge relief efforts, much less, you know, and you would go around with your bottles of water and always want to give them to, um, uh, to the people you saw. And, uh, I'll never forget seeing, a a, a woman carrying a, uh, uh, a blanket and I thought she was carrying some provisions up the hillside and she was carrying her dead child uh, to be buried. And, you know, you would see these things and there were, I think there was hundreds of thousands, at least a quarter of a million people who, who wound up up there. And it was in that time that we got word with, I don't, we had only rudimentary cell phones. I don't even remember how we heard, but we heard that there was going to be an, a deployment of U S forces to come in and run, uh, and manage a relief effort. And I'll tell you, you know, not to be uh, too uh, Pollyannish or maudlin about this, but when those American troops came up that hillside and, and knowing, you know, uh, what it took to get there, even if you had fancy Chinook helicopters or whatever they had, uh, and the, uh, uh, the help they brought and uh, just from a relief standpoint was, you know, as an American, you could take, you could take real pride in it. It was an incredibly emotional moment, but you're right. That was after the policy failure uh, that led to the, the calamity in the first place. Uh, so how long uh, were you reporting in that part of the world? Well, I never lived there, so uh, it's hard to put a time on it. It just was, uh, like the story you know, started to fade, so your trips became less frequent, sort of thing. Right. I think. Um, uh, well, in in ninety one, uh, I you know, the, the, and that war, of course, was a famously short war, and even these gyrations afterwards, uh, um, you know, didn't last that long. But uh, uh, late that year or not even late that year, but come August 91, I can remember thinking, well, you know, so in my brief time in this overseas world, we've, the Berlin Wall has come down. Uh, we've had a, a trauma and war in the, uh, in the Middle East and the Persian Gulf, you know, all manner of other little things that popped up along the way. And then comes word of a little something called, uh, you know, Mikhail Gorbachev under some bizarre form of house arrest and, uh, and, a, and what looks like a coup underway. And this was in mid-August of 1991. And so the whole, again, I'm still technically living in Germany. I hardly ever saw that apartment uh, because then all of us were, uh, uh, you know, were dispatched in sort of, uh, uh, what's the word, in, in shifts, basically, to go spend a lot of time in Moscow that fall because from the moment that that coup it was very short. You may recall, it was just a three day episode, basically. Right. With but, like the tanks surrounding the Kremlin. Is, 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 uh, is that... Actually, uh, yeah, yeah. They, 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 no, they were surrounding the Russian white house, which ah, okay. was the, 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 the parliament. Uh, it was Yeltsin's great brave moment standing on a tank outside and, and, you know, sort of shoot me if you want to. And, uh, that turned the tide. But what it also did was open a, you know, seemed endless to us at the time. In my memory, it seems like years and years, but it was really just a three, four-month progression 
of uh, an unraveling that led to, uh, I mean, we spent a lot of time that, that fall and early winter basically waiting for the moment and wondering how the moment would play out of the end of the Soviet Union. What was the most dramatic moment uh, from like a, a news perspective that, that you experienced uh, during that time? I would say basically my experience was more bizarre moments uh, because, again, it was a lot of waiting. In retrospect, it's kind of interesting that I was sent. Uh, you, you all of a sudden could travel to all these places that fall in the Soviet Union that used to take endless, you know, uh, requests and, and, and permissions or you just wouldn't go at all. I went to Uzbekistan, to Tashkent and Samarkand, fascinating cities. Why? Because there was concern that with the Soviet yoke lifted, uh, you know, a, 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 a brand of Islam would take over that might be seen as threatening in the region. And uh, we found actually nothing of the sort. Uh, and But, you know, interesting given where things have gone in terms of radical Islam since. When I say bizarre, um, this whole sort of waiting for the end of empire became a, you know, journalists and editors went crazy because you, you just didn't know if it's going to happen and it seems it's going to happen. What form is it going to take? Is Gorbachev just going to go on TV one day? Well, ultimately, that is sort of what happened. But uh, I was sent to Kazakhstan, which is not, you know, it's not a little stone's throw from Moscow. Uh, and, and it wasn't for any particular story, but. Uh, you know, our tea leaf Kremlin readers had heard that Yeltsin and Gorbachev were going to have a meeting in the capital, which was then known as Almaty. And that just, I, I don't remember the particulars, but that was seen as, aha, uh, you know, this is going to be the moment where they decided. And it makes sense that it's going to be on this sort of somewhat neutral territory. Well, I, I think I spent a week in Kazakhstan where our minder uh, was sort of run out of things to, to show us. Uh, had a little bit too much vodka one night and took us to the top of uh, one of the party buildings in the capital and, and proudly told us that this was the spot from which Comrade Yeltsin had urinated uh, in one of their, you know, recent gatherings. I said, thank you very much. I think it's time to go home. Ha! There you go. Well, he did have a reputation, Yeltsin. Yeah. Um, so... Eventually, though, I mean, the, the, the uh, USSR did break up. Um, and... Like, did, I, I suppose you're probably there covering the story for the whole time, for, for the entire time. Um, like, how often were you, were you still in Germany at the time? Were you going back to New York? I was, uh, I was in Germany. I was not in, you know, I was not part of the permanent Moscow team. So I, I was not there for the moment when it actually. Uh, of of uh, all that waiting, you weren't there for the Yeah, moment. no. <laughs> well, you, you know, that was luck of the draw, I guess. And, uh, and I was not, I think I was probably home for Christmas then. I can't remember. Um, but no. And, uh, uh, but what it did do was it opened up, uh, uh, again, because of, it's another, not attention deficit thing, but just the world is changing. And so if one year, Eastern Europe looks like the big thing. And the next year, the Persian Gulf looks like the, the big thing. Now we have, you know, there, there was a huge and understandable interest in putting more people in the Moscow Bureau, A, because uh, you could. All of, you didn't have to just have your one accredited team. B, because there are endless number of places and things to see and stories to, to cover. And C, I guess, because... If it was interesting to watch things like the shock therapy economic program in Poland or the, 
you know, presidency of Václav Havel in, in Czechoslovakia. That's all trumped by how is a 70-something-year-old empire going to unravel? And is it going to be peaceful? Is it going to be orderly? Is it going to be catastrophic? Who is this Yeltsin guy? And what's going to happen, by the way, to all these republics that are now, for the most part, independent nations? And so I was asked to go there and went happily to live in the and, and work for ABC News in Moscow for a couple of years, starting in, in 90, late 91. Uh, so earlier you, you mentioned that uh, Peter Jennings was a mentor of yours. Yes. How, how did that uh, friendship begin? How did that mentorship begin? Well, uh, boy, uh, you know, it started just, I, I guess, I, you know, I watched him on television uh, before I even started at ABC News. Um, I don't remember that as being so, you know, I liked him as a broadcaster. Uh, I then slowly, especially when I went overseas, you know, moving up the food chain a little bit, would have some engagement with him as an editor. He was a very engaged and quite demanding editor of work. And though I, and although I was a producer, which meant I, I wasn't always writing things, uh, you know, he, 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 I had some back and forth with him. And then he came to Russia when I was based there. And so I spent time with him in that way. But um, the more I got to know him, and there were people who, still people who, I mean, he died more than 10 years ago, but who worked with him, who found him, you know, just too demanding. Uh, and, and listen, television anchors were then, I don't know, it's probably changed along with everything else now. They were, you had to be a certain personality to be one probably. But I found him demanding in a totally appropriate way. And by that, I mean, you know, he he completely thought that, um, you know, it was an incredible privilege, honor uh, to do what we did for a living. It was also a great challenge. And you had to work really hard to build the trust of viewers and readers and listeners. And um, he he I think of all the lessons he taught me, he profoundly felt that if you thought something was interesting and important, that it was your job, whether you were writing the piece or editing the piece or finding the great pictures for the piece or the great voices or what have you, that you had better be sure to, uh, uh, to make it as uh, accessible or interesting to viewers who might not understand why it's important. In other words, he was a complete, uh, uh, you know, counterpoint to a lot of what you've seen now, I think, and for many years now, uh, in network news in the United States, where it's sort of, oh, you know, nobody's going to care about that. Ah, don't do that story. It's, it's, why would anybody in Peoria think it's interesting? Was he competitive with like Tom Brokaw and, and Dan Rather, who are at NBC and, and CBS? I mean, there's like, you know, it was that era in the 90s, you know, where they're just like three nightly yeah. news broadcasts and, and, you know, you had lo viewers who were loyal to each of those anchors. And it was like yeah, they, almost like a cult of personality around each of them. Like you're no in my house, we we watched NBC News because my parents liked Tom Broca for some reason. You yeah. know, it's just like well, they, they, they were. I mean, it, it, hugely competitive. They're still competitive now, I think. But it was uh, you're right. They, these were three guys who um, very different backgrounds, uh, very different personalities. I, I you know I, I would see the others when, when later on when I, I became Peter's foreign editor. Uh, 
you know, we then you would only go to international stories when they were huge, right? I mean, you, you know, because he, he wouldn't get on an airplane and go places unless it was something big. And then very often you'd see, you know, so I had bizarre encounters, for example, with Dan Rather in Somalia and Tom Brokaw in Moscow or whatever. But um, well, what was the bizarre encounter with Dan Rather in Somalia? That sounds like a story. Well, I, I'll get to that. But let me just, <laughs> yeah, just, sure. just to answer your other question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they, they were very competitive. I don't know, you know, this is probably naive of me to say this now. I didn't think Peter was that competitive about the ratings per se, although I'm sure he was, meaning are you number one or not and all that. Uh, I think Dan Rather was massively competitive in that sense. And may, I, don't, I don't know, you know, Tom's is, is a much more sort of quiet persona than the other two, and, and I, I don't really know. However, they, they all certainly were that way. What Peter's, where, where Peter's competitive juices really flared was when uh, he would see something. He always wanted to know, you know, with certain stories in particular, what did they have tonight? You know, so it's it, it, you, you, 6.30, the news went on, and 7.01, we're back down there. And, and part of it is a postmortem on how did our program seem to fit together? How did the pieces work? Uh, and especially when we were on, a, you know, he, he got deeply uh, involved and engaged in the whole Bosnia uh, thing in the early 90s. And I had just come in as his foreign editor then. And um, so, he, you know, and this would be a day in, day out story. Um, and he was always very proud when he felt we had, you know, we were ahead of the game. Uh, we had some clarity or something special to our work. And flip side, very annoyed and, and would let me have it if not only the other broadcast, but, uh, you know, this is this is largely a pre-digital time. So I can remember the, you know, getting my newspaper in the morning and and being very upset when there would be a big New York Times spread on something that I hadn't even known about in my capacity as foreign. Mm. Yeah. Um, so so the, the, the Somali incident. What was that? Well, that sounds, that sounds Somalia was worth a whole, you know, uh, you talk about attention shifts. And, and I think in television news, because unlike a major newspaper, major newspapers will, te- will usually have, even today, but certainly 20 years ago, they would have people all over the world. And so, like, they would have a Nairobi person who can get to Mogadishu pretty quickly. Television news, when they decide, you know, it is a big story or when they decided it was a big story, first of all, you need armies because you need people, you need teams who are going to cover the news for all the different uh, platforms. Uh, You need, you know, back then anyway, you needed more sort of infrastructure to support editing gear and all these things that are less needed now. And uh, all that is to explain why it was that I'm sitting in a Kremlin interview in I guess it's December 1992, freezing. And I get summoned out of there uh, because somebody's beeper is going off. We used beepers back then, pagers. Uh, and I've got to figure out how to get myself to Mogadishu. You know, and, and you talk about a weird segue. Uh, and that was when the United States had announced it was going to go and uh, send uh, uh, the military in to help support famine relief. In the United Nations in Somalia. And, you know, 
Um, Were you there on, on, on the beach when, when the, the Marines landed? I mean, that was such a surreal moment to watch. Again, I was like a 10-year-old news junkie, so I watched on TV this kind of surreal moment where there, you know, U.S. journalists were filming U.S. troops in the dead of night entering a Somali beach. I'm glad you reminded me of it, Mark. I was there. Uh, I, was wow. with a, I, was with a, I was actually with Jim Laurie, who had been a Moscow correspondent, and we were a little team on the beach with a Somali fixer. God knows how we, you know, we had all these people who were incredible at, at sort of landing first, almost in a, in a military mindset themselves to get us a place to stay, get a, get some helpers who you could trust. And by the way, the helpers there all seemed to have AK-47s. I mean, it was insane. And then, uh, you know, there's a, a wish to be live from the beach in Mogadishu. Um, now, all I will uh, say about that, everybody has their own memory, and it's been, I think, you know, in a lot of books and, and documentaries and all the rest. But it was um, it was an ugly moment in a few ways. And I think what, what had happened was there had been such a, uh, uh, what would you call it, a, a so many strictures from the Pentagon around the Desert Storm, the, per the first Persian Gulf War. They hadn't allowed, I mean, there were reporters who were just, and I never was part of this, but uh, kept in the hotels in, in Saudi Arabia, partly because the Pentagon insisted on that, partly because the Saudis didn't allow much. And so, you know, it was a war that was almost impossible to cover. Well, now comes the next big U.S. military deployment. Uh, we're talking, I think, December 1992. And there, first of all, there is no functioning government in Somalia, so there's nobody who can impose any restrictions on anything. And the Pentagon didn't exactly have, I mean, they were just about to arrive, so maybe they had a couple of advances. So there is, you have the exact opposite now. You have a, uh, a free-for-all, basically. Ted Koppel, not Peter Jennings, Ted Koppel was up on this little, you know, the airport terminal building, kind of like what would function, I guess, as an air traffic control tower. It was bizarrely beautiful. It's right on the Indian Ocean there. And um, Dawn was just coming up. Jim Laurie and I had been running around getting interviews with people uh, in, the, in the run up to it. And Tom Batag, who was a great guy, who was Tom uh, Ted Koppel's producer, said he wanted a two and a half minute piece from us about the reaction to the landing itself. Uh, and, and he needed that in like a couple of hours. And then come the, you know, first lights start to make, you can see out on the water, and here they come. And uh, uh, they're, I don't know, Navy SEALs, I can't remember what they were, start sloshing in from the water. I mean, it's quite an amazing thing to watch. I was probably, I think I was 30 years old then, and I'd never seen anything like this. And they come racing up, and of course, they have been briefed, probably, that, you know, you might encounter all kinds of enemy this and that. Uh, when you come in and they're, and they're extremely aggressive and screaming and running up with their, their big guns. And what they hadn't been briefed on was, I mean, I shouldn't laugh, but the, the, there are there's no angry anybody. There's just a bunch of Somalis who are staring, even the ones with guns. They, they you know, kind of can't believe what they're seeing and quite excited about it, by the way. But what they had no idea was awaiting them were hundreds of you know, journalists just sitting and, and kind of occupying the airstrip. And uh, uh, when I say it got a little ugly, they were, you know, they were pushing and shoving with reporters. And I'll never forget where I was. Uh, one Somali guy just, I don't know, did something that 
that worried a soldier. So all of a sudden, uh, in the only thing that really qualified as engagement or action with the enemy, although that should be in quotes because there's nothing enemy about him, there's a, there's a Navy SEAL with his boot to the head of a Somali guy on the concrete of the thing, and about 20 television cameras shooting this because there's nothing much else to shoot other than coming up the beach. And I remember thinking, wow, you know, that's not going to be a happy image for the start of this. Fortunately, for all concerned, the next thing that happened, and dawn was just breaking, must have, I guess it was prime time here the evening before, uh, the, the troops went up uh, this little road into the city center and line with people cheering, you know. So all the, you know, any kind of concern or opposition or all that melted away in the initial moments. Um, because the bad guys had run for the hills. Once they knew that the, that the Americans were coming, to going into the, in, Fascinating. the interior. Um, and uh, that interior, though, became one of the most dangerous things that I saw ever in, in my entire career because uh, I was sent out. It was a place called Baidoa. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's where I saw Dan Rather at one point, although I'm not sure he was there when things got really dicey. Because uh, all the, the militants, they, they were you know, riding on these open jeeps with chewing cot, which is a, a, a narcotic uh, a, a leaf that they... Yeah, like somewhere between tobacco and cocaine, right? I guess. I yeah. wouldn't know. But, um, and, uh, and they had all gone there and were taking people you know, for ransom. And uh, basically because they knew these were their last days before the, the U.S. rolled in. So that was rough. Um, so we're, we're just about out of time. I, I want to give you a moment, though, if you'd like, to talk a little bit about what you're doing now at the uh, Asia Society uh, and uh, you know what we can look forward to. Sure. Well, I'll just say in context of what we've been talking about, Mark, that uh, you know, in some ways it, it couldn't be a more different world. I mean, I think almost every day that my life has a, a, a Zen quality to it uh, because uh, uh, all these things we've been talking about and, and you know, racing around and adrenaline fuel trips here and there and dropping everything and 24 seven. And, and that's not the nature obviously of an organization like the Asia society, but in some ways, adrenaline fueled Asia society. There you go. <laughs> right. That's what we think about. Well, I mean, there's, there's a, there's a pace that you have to get used to, I guess. But the, the great thing for me is I now travel to just as interesting parts of the world. I can, uh, it's never, um, uh, you know, I was, I was never too fond of the phrase parachute journalism, but there's certainly some truth to it. And um, so now I go to places and I have the luxury, you know, the, and, and the intellectual luxury of really delving into issues and understanding them in ways that try as I might, you know, there just never was the, the bandwidth or the time to do in the old days. Um, I can, uh, you know, read deeply about places and not always feel like everything is a crash course. Um, what we what we do, uh, uh, we were founded 60 years ago, exactly, actually, by uh, John D. Rockefeller III, who was the grandson of the famous Rockefeller. And his he had the basic, simple mission, which, which pertains today, which was to build uh, understanding and build bridges uh, between the peoples of uh, the United States and Asia. And that's only changed a little bit to include, you know, bridges between different Asian nations, because, of course, they are so different. And his other uh, goal, he had traveled extensively uh, in Japan and China in particular back then, and it was unusual to have done so. 
uh, his other aim was to make sure that the arts and culture were part of that Bridgeport because um, he just thought that Americans were woefully ignorant, not only about which leaders lead which nations and which policies they, they present, but also, um, you know, the incredible, in, in most cases, uh, uh, you know, centuries old cultures uh, of these societies. And um, so we're engaged in both. And I guess one thing that I've been most interested in and, and proud of is uh, areas where uh, the two meld. And uh, I'll just give you one recent fresh example. Uh, so as you probably know, there's been a, a political revolution or evolution uh, in what the country used to call Burma, where I went 20 some years ago for the first time and had the privilege of going back with the Asia Society last year. And um, this organization before my time actually was deeply involved in back channel work to uh, build some of those bridges between uh, what was then a, a really pretty nasty autocratic military regime and the opposition, uh, which has now come to the front and won peaceful elections and fair elections. Uh, Aung San Suu Kyi is the kind of uh, standard bearer for all that. But the arts and culture played a role because uh, those talks and those engagements would never have happened if we were just a think tank trying to do that on the side. They, they happened in part because the Burmese were interested in our arts and culture work. We have uh, helped that country restore some of its greatest uh, Buddhist art, uh, brought some of it to uh, landmark exhibitions here. So. Uh, we do that in different parts of the world in different ways, but um, we're you know we're nonpartisan. Uh, that's another, I guess, uh, area of, of common ground in the sense that uh, at ABC News we uh, we kept partisanship out of it, uh, although not everybody believed that, uh, and uh, and we do it here too. And uh, you know we're always looking to try to um, uh, be some either glue that holds places together or. Uh, uh, keeps uh, uh, you know, nastiness and violence from from getting in the way, and that's there's there's huge appetite for and need for that all over Asia today. Uh, well, Tom, thank you so much for your time, and I, I love these stories. It's sort of like uh, it's, it's kind of interesting to see what's on the other side of the of the camera from some of those big events. So, thank you. Oh, you're very welcome, Mark. I appreciate it. Alrighty, thank you so much to Tom. That was fun. It was long. I, I love going long, going in depth, and uh, wow, some some great stories. That Somali story is is one of my favorites so far of all the uh, stories I've gathered on this podcast so far. Hearing that iconic moment from the beachhead in Somalia as the U.S. Navy SEALs arrived was was pretty pretty fascinating. Alrighty, we'll see you next time. Bye.